0: Welcome to the kitchen table. I see you smiling over there. You're finally part of the magic. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. Welcome, Kent. Thank you. I am Justin White. I am your amateur podcaster today, and we are doing uh, a podcast for our self-help series. And today my guest is Kent Smith. Thank you for coming. Absolutely. Um, I know you're a little nervous. Just a little. No reason to be nervous. If you need a hug, let me know. Okay. That's why I brought Emily. All right on. Yeah big hugger. <laughs> emotional support animal. That's right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always wanted to get a shirt that said emotional support human and yeah. then have a dog walking by, and, <laughs> you know, so I can get on the plane for free or right. whatever. Yeah. So anyway, so this is self-help series. You're going to tell us a story today, but what I want to hear about first, tell us about your journey to today, which is not necessarily the story you're about to tell, but tell us how you came to the Colorado Springs fire department and and uh, a little bit of your life before.
1: Sure. I, uh, so I was born and raised in uh, Colorado. I actually grew up about 25 miles east of here in Peyton, Colorado. It's a little tiny, uh, little kind of podunk town out there. Um, You know, I kind of grew up in a a split home. My parents divorced when I was really young and um, they actually, to this day, still live like three miles away from each other, so. I, I kind of split time between my mom and my dad and I went to elementary school, middle school, high school, uh, all out in Peyton. Um, I was pretty active in sports out there I played some football, played baseball quite a bit. Um, then I got hurt, hurt my knees. That's why I kind of hobble around and every six months or so I get a knee injury around here. But, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed uh, growing up out there. I think it was really good for me. Um, and I think part of how I grew up is also a part of my, my, the next story that I'm going to tell, but, um, you know, so high school and stuff was pretty super normal for me other than, you know, grow, growing up in a split home, which is, um, it was interesting, but um, it's part of who I am and it makes me who I am today. Um, and my parents have been super supportive all the way through that, which has been amazing. Um, when I was, uh, you know, part, part of my story that's really interesting actually is um, I grew up uh, in high school playing high school golf. And, uh, it was after I hurt my knees and had a couple of knee surgeries. Um, believe it or not, I, I wasn't going to go pro in either, you know, baseball or football, which I know is kind of a shocker. I mean, looking at you, Who right? Um, so I started playing golf and, um, I played golf with my grandpa growing up and, um, it was always kind of a part of our family, but, um, I got really good. Um, and I was going to go play, um, college golf. I was going to play division two college golf at CSU Pueblo. Um, but part of my other story is um, that did not happen, and my choice was to um, stay in Peyton and stay kind of local in Colorado Springs. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to be an EMT and I wanted to be a firefighter. So um, there was a little, you know, 170 square mile fire district out there in Peyton and um, really, if you were uh, 18 years, really, they didn't really care if you were like 17 years old and had a pulse and you were willing to show up for some calls, um, they would they would bring you on as a volunteer. So I spent a fair bit of my time in the early stages of my life um, when I was pretty young, like 17, 18 years old, volunteering at that fire department. And um, I went to EMT school when I was really young. I went to EMT school when I was, um, like the day I turned 18, I started EMT school. I got some Fire One certs and all that type of stuff. Uh, Actually, Ty Mather was my Fire One instructor in 2008, 2009, something like that, Yeah. yeah um so i you know i volunteered with them and then um people would be shocked when they hear this now but i actually really enjoyed the medicine aspect of of what i was doing and um it was kind of interesting because in peyton there um in the community that i volunteered in we you were lucky to get an als provider on scene um in you know 30 40 minutes sometimes over an hour before you could get an als provider on scene um depending on if a helicopter could fly or you know, if the ambulance that was usually in Falcon could get out there or not. Um, so there was this huge need um, and I was enjoying the medicine thing. So um, I decided to go to paramedic school um, and I went to paramedic school at Pikes Peak Community College in oh, 2010, I think I started paramedic school.
0: It was Ty Mather uh, your instructor for uh, paramedic yeah, school? Yeah, that's a heart no on that.
1: No. <laughs> um, I, so I finished paramedic school in Um, I'm actually really proud of it. I was able to be a part of um, kind of getting an ALS program uh, into that community. And uh, as far as I know, it still exists today. Um, I'm I'm obviously far removed from that. But that was a really cool uh, part of the early stages to kind of give back in that community um, where I was volunteering. to, to get some ALS coverage out there. And it's still, you know, few and far between, and it's still very rural medicine, and you're, you know, you're a long ways away from a hospital. But, um, so I, I practiced as a paramedic out there for a little bit. Meanwhile, I was working part-time at Falcon Fire Department and spent a little time out there. Um, and um, then I, I really just wanted to get some experience, and quite frankly, I wanted to make some money, because um, that volunteer job didn't pay me very well, ringing right around zero dollars a year Um, so I needed some money so I could move out of my mom's Mm -hmm. basement, which is, you know, um, But the meatloaf was good, why would you (laughs) leave that? Uh, That's right. And, uh, that was a good, that's another good movie line right there. Um, so I got hired at, uh, AMR. I actually started at AMR in 2011. Um, I, I worked for AMR when I was uh, going through paramedic school, kind of part-time as an EMT and picked up some special events and stuff like that. But, um, I got hired at when I turned 21 back, back then you had to be 21 years old to work for AMR because their insurance wouldn't uh, insure anybody less than 21 to drive emergent, which is even my me at 21 years old, it was absolutely ludicrous that they would insure me to drive an <laughs> ambulance uh, emergent all over the city. But, um, so I worked for AMR uh, as a paramedic, started with them in 2012 um, and I worked on the streets and that's where I met uh, Emily. Emily was uh, on probation here in Colorado Springs. And um, there's some, you know, interesting stories that, um, I maybe we'll just edit them out if I hear it and they're terrible, but, um, my partner, he, he doesn't work at AMR anymore, but, um, we had seen Emily on a call and I remember where it was. She, of course does not remember where it was. She was with Chris Johnson (laughs) on some anxiety patient over in a, you know, tiny little apartment in H district. And I started talking to my partner about her and, uh, he said something to the effect of like, she's way out of your league, man, you've got no chance whatsoever. And at that point I said, yeah, fine. Oh, okay. We'll see. And, uh, a couple of years later, we got married, which is really cool. And, uh, <laughs> so
0: you said, well, I'll, I'll climb that mountain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> people, um, ma- people climb Everest every day. <laughs>
1: And I'm like, yeah, I mean, you're probably right. Like she is. He used to say things like you make $20,000 a year at a paramedic on a private ambulance. She's got her whole life ahead of her working for the <laughs> fire department. What does she want with you? Blah, blah, blah. Sounds like a good friend. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it was all Very in, supportive. All in, you know, loving fun. Yeah. But, um, so I'm glad he kind of challenged me to do that. And, and then, of course, I met Emily and um, we've been together ever since. We've been together for um, 10, 10 years, mm-hmm. a little over 10, actually. Uh, married nine tomorrow. Um, we'll Congratulations! Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she's a saint. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I'm working at I'm working for AMR, and I'm I'm doing a lot of uh, I was I still wanted to be in the fire service. Um, that was still kind of where my passion was, um, and I realized obviously that private EMS had no future. Um, it has future for some people, but it just wasn't for me. So I was testing all over the place. You know, I had I had family in. Um, in the Phoenix area. So I tested down for Phoenix fire a couple different times and uh, made it a uh, fair fair ways through their process. And they ended up like losing a grant or having their budget frozen or something. It's so 120 there. Uh, yeah, right. Exactly. So, <laughs> you know, looking back, I'm pretty glad that they lost their funding to hire me. So I don't work in Phoenix. But um, I, w- I worked in or I tried to get hired in Phoenix, um, some small fire departments, you know, red, white and blue, Lake Dillon. I kind of did that testing around. I tested for um south metro fire and meanwhile the entire time i'm testing for colorado springs but um, they had uh, moved recently to the fire team test and Mm -hmm. um, i could i didn't know how to pass that thing i could not pass it but um, i finally over you know taking that thing four or five times with different fire departments and then here in colorado springs um, i was finally to the point where i was getting better at it and there was one testing cycle that um, I did okay on the test, but I ended up getting like right at the top of the B band, and I didn't get any. Uh, obviously, didn't get a conditional offer, um, and I had I was kind of at this breaking point um, where I said, you know, I can't do this. I can't ride on the ambulance, and I'm not getting hired here um, with Colorado Springs. But I still enjoyed the medicine aspect of what I was doing, so I decided that you know I'm going to try one more time, and if I don't get hired this time, I'm going to I'm going to pivot and I'm going to do something else and. Um, This sounds awful. It sounds arrogant. But uh, my backup plan was I was going to try to go to PA school or go to medical school. Um, I was going to go back to school and finish my bachelor's degree um, and just really dive headfirst into that and put my whole heart and soul into uh, doing well and taking the MCATs and getting into medical school. But um, so, of course, it was kind of like I took the test with like, you know what? I've never passed it before and I don't presume that I'm going to nothing's going to change now. And it'll be good for me to go back to school and to do something with my life. Um, And of course, lo and behold, that's the time that I got in the A-Band and I got a conditional offer and then I got hired
0: Took all Um, the pressure off. Exactly. And here you are. The rest is history, (laughs) right?
1: So, yeah, you know, I've been here ever since. And um, it's interesting because my, you know, everything that has happened in my life and, you know, some of the pretty low times when I was working at AMR and all of these things have contributed to who I am today and have contributed to, to where I'm at in the organization and where I'm at professionally and personally and um, I think when we're in when I was in those moments I was miserable and then I look back on them um, and I, I'm pretty grateful for them because um, it got me where I am today and I've met some of the most fantastic people here and um, you know like, like all of us right we've got some lifelong friends from the fire department and um, I really don't see myself doing anything else for the, one of the main reasons, cause I have no other skills. Uh, uh, the st- fire service does that to you. I, I, have never, I still have not gone back to school. I talk about it all the time, but I, yeah. I do not go back to school. Um, but I'm very happy with where I'm at now. And you know, my career has just obviously recently changed and um, that has breathed new life into me. Um, I was pretty well done being a paramedic. I had been doing mm-hmm. it for about 13 years and um, it was just time for something different. So it all worked out, that timing worked out pretty perfectly for me. New challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And so I was thrown to the wolves right away. I've been getting some cool stuff. Good. Yeah. That's I'm the way we do
0: it. That's that's a good thing to be known for. <laughs> yeah. Just the good calls. <laughs> um, so Peyton, Kurt Crum from Peyton? Yeah. So is it true that his like number is retired and his, his football jersey hangs in yeah. the, the hallowed halls of yeah. Peyton High School?
1: It absolutely does. Uh-huh. He was one of the best athletes out there in Peyton. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't many to choose from, and I love you, Kurt, but... You know, there's not many athletes out there to <laughs> choose from, but he was out there. And, yeah, so I've got that connection with Kirk Crum and Brian Myers also was out okay, there. Okay, Brian Myers.
0: I didn't know he was so there. So we yeah. talk
1: about, you know, Brian and I talk about Peyton baseball all the time. He, he knows the baseball coach that, um, that uh, was my coach uh, during high school and just a super cool guy. And, yeah, so it's you would think growing up in such a small town, like, there's no way I'm going to have connections to people in this, sure. you know, in this big city. And lo and behold, two people I work with and know well went to the same school oh wow. okay so. I think Crum sent me a picture one time of my senior picture on the wall in Peyton and I look like a wow moron. I, I look like a moron and Kurt looked he looked pretty good in his senior picture he's fit He was ready to go he was ready to rock <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not touching that one.
0: <laughs> you're, you're baiting me uh, <laughs> all right so this is a self-help series you have a story to tell um, my job here is to step back and, and give you the mic and let you tell your stories Um, like I always say I'm a naturally curious person so I may have some questions at the end but it's your story it's your mic and so go for it
1: yeah um I appreciate you having me on I've been uh I've been talking with uh, a lot of folks in the peer sport team and um some other guys who have done this self-help podcast and I've wanted to do it for quite some time and you know of course when I got it scheduled with you I felt really good about it and then as the days got closer and closer I started to get more nervous and more nervous and um, you know, it's probably part of the problem that I have is I'm so worried about what other people think about me. So I'm, you know, I want this this podcast to be perfect. But I think the important thing here is to, you know, continue to to break down that culture of, you know, just put the walls up and shut down and not talk about stuff. So um, I'm going to practice a little bit of what I preach and have some vulnerability today. And um, everybody, maybe extend me a little bit of grace because I, mm-hmm. I've I've shared my story um, in other um, settings before. Um, and I will probably share it a little bit differently today. Um, just for sake of appropriateness, but, um, yeah, so it's, it's a new thing for me and it's, um, it's very vulnerable. Um, and I am nervous and I'm not afraid to admit that anymore. I used to be, uh, I used to feel like I had to be perfect all the time, but so anyways, um, yeah, I'll kind of go back to the, to the beginning, um, there. And I, I, like I said, I grew up in Peyton um, and what was, uh, what started to contribute to to some of the issues that I know that I have today, um, I didn't know them back then, but um, I grew up in this town where, um, you know, it was kind of this culturally normal accepted thing that, you know, the the country folks just went out and, you know, every every weekend we went out and partied and stuff and I went to school Monday through Thursday in in Peyton, we went to school Monday through Thursday. And um, my parents both worked on Fridays, but I was old enough to kinda like be alone and do what I wanted to do on on Fridays. So I spent a lot of my uh, time alone um, and just really doing a lot of nefarious things that I should not have been doing because I I didn't really have any supervision. And um, I was really good at, um, I was really good at kinda lying and manipulating and um, making people understand that specifically my parents, that, um, that I was doing the right things and they didn't have to worry about me. And I wanted to continue that facade so I could continue to do the things that I wanted to do. Um, so that's kind of where it started. I was, um, uh, I, when I was 15 years old, uh, I, I, I was like 15 or 16, I, I, I think I was driving actually at the time. So um, I was 15 years old, and um, it was 16 years old, excuse me, and it was really the first time that I started to um, seriously dabble with alcohol. Um, you know, I think like, I I don't want to speak for everybody, but like everybody, I think everybody's had a, you know, a sip of beer out of their dad's beer once in a while, or, you know, have tried something out of the liquor cabinet and, and, you know, probably hated it at the time. But, um, I do not remember a single time in my life where I took one sip of alcohol and I thought it was bad. I thought it was magic. I thought it was the best thing I've ever had in my entire life. Um, you know, so I'm 16 years old, um, and I can remember this like it was yesterday and it's something that will stick with me forever, but, um. It was around this time actually because it was out at the county fair in Cowhand, Colorado. Um, I was hanging out out there and again had no supervision and um, uh, I, I was hanging out with a bunch of older kids. You know, I didn't really get along with people in my grade um, and that's, um, you know, I, I don't really know why that was, uh, maybe because they were kind of straight laced and trying to do the right thing and I was not particularly interested in that course of action. So um, I was hanging out with the people that I knew would do the stuff that I wanted to do. So we're all at the county fair and um, it was the first time that I had gotten drunk and I was, like I said, I was, I was 15 or 16 years old. Um, And I remember very vividly that, you know, this is a classic cowhand party. So don't, don't be laughing at me here, but we're out there and there's like 15 people and we've got just the truck circled up in a, in a field out in some guys, you know, property out there. And um, we're drinking. And I remember, uh, I remember being able to drink um, a lot more than my you know, 15, 16 year old counterparts, you know, they're having a the couple beers and they're, you know, kind of choking them down cause they don't really like them. But, um, I thought it was, again, it was magic for me. So, um, you know, we party all night long and, um, of course I'm the last one awake and I'm making a fool out of myself and it's the first time I've ever been drunk. And, um, It's uh, it's a scary thing to think about now. But I woke up the next morning um, in the middle of that field by myself. No vehicles around, no people around. I didn't know where I was. I didn't remember where I was. Um, And it was one of those moments in life where, you know, I it was the first time I ever experienced a hangover. It was absolutely miserable. Um, And then uh, the next thought in my head was like, you know, I I think at 16 years old, I, I probably should have slowed down like, ah, you know what? That's a bad call. I, I'm not gonna do stuff like that. But for me, it was the complete opposite. I was absolutely hooked. Um, you know, I thought that was, that was the cool thing. Um, and I think what it did um, initially was, you know, I, I know all this stuff now because of the work that I've done, but I, I had these, um, I had some of these character flaws and these character defects and this ego and this kind of facade that I was carrying around with me. And um, my phone keeps going off, it's distracting me. Um, and the the way that I you know I was actually a fairly shy kid um, but the way that I was able to kind of interact with people and and feel good about myself um, was to be drunk and um, so my my drinking really kind of progressed from there Um, you know at 16 years old throughout high school um, I would steal alcohol from my my parents liquor cabinet um, almost every single day and I would drink in school Um, I would take it to class and my buddies loved me because I was the one that, you know, I could sneak our, I could sneak chewing tobacco into school and I could sneak our alcohol into school. And, you know, here I was at, you know, freshman, sophomore, junior in high school, just literally going through class all day long, just drinking all day long. And the problem was, um, it didn't impact, like there was no consequences for my actions back in those days. And, um, you know, I still, uh, I graduated at the top of my class, I graduated with a 4.0 GPA and I was doing well in school and I was doing well in sports. Um, and I had all these friends and I had all these relationships, but what I know now is those relationships were so surface level and they were fake. Um, I don't speak to a single person from high school that I used to talk to. Not, I don't have one single friend from high school. And in fact, I have, I, I don't really have any desire to, to connect with them um, in any way. Um, so. Um, you know that. That, I think what, what I know now is you know, I knew a long time ago that I drank differently from most normal people. You know, the people that can have a beer or two or have a you know a cocktail and leave half of it on the table. You know, in my opinion, for a guy like me, that's sacrilege. Like I, I if I don't have at least you know ten or fifteen beers or eight or nine cocktails. Um, I don't know what we're doing here. Like that doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't compute in my head. So now I know um, that uh, I'm different. Um, my body and my brain react differently to alcohol than other people, um, and I knew that a long, a long, long time ago. Probably 15 or 16 years ago. But I was not willing to admit it because I was liking what I was doing. So. Um, <clears throat> You know, again, life continues on and it progresses on. I end up staying. Um, I, I end up staying with the, the fire department, the volunteer fire department that I was at, and I was going to school and I was doing all these things. But, you know, at paramedic during paramedic school, I would um, go to lunch every single day and uh, we would drink. Um, I would come into paramedic school hung over, ninety percent of the time, ninety five percent of the time. Um, but again, I didn't recognize this as a problem. Um, and I kind of classified it as like, I'm just a partier and I'm young and I have no real responsibilities, um, because it wasn't impacting my life. It wasn't, uh, I, I wasn't, I w- there was no consequences. So I got through paramedic school. Um, I moved in with, um, actually, uh, Trace Reeves and, you know, Charles Raglan. they've been out here, um, for the training academy and, um, We moved in with them and I was the absolute ringleader of the the partiers, you know? Um, And again, we're young and we're, you know, we're we're all single and we're having a good time. And, um, but I still was drinking differently than those guys were. Um, When those guys would drink all night and then they would go to sleep, I would stay up and drink more. Or when they weren't looking, I would, drink a little extra. Or if we were going out to go do something, I would have to, we're going out to a bar to, to have drinks. I would have to have three or four drinks to go out to the bar and have drinks. Um, so I became really, really good at um, at kind of hiding. And I became really good at this facade and this act that I was putting on for so long. Um, when I got hired with uh, AMR, obviously I met Emily and I um, we we ended up moving in together um, we lived right there on on boulder street right across from memorial central and uh, uh again we're, our life is young and we're, we're continuing to drink and we're continuing to drink and um that's just kind of what we did i would go to work and then i would come home and i would drink and there were more times than i could count that i would um I, for real really lack of a better term i would abuse sick time Um, because I knew I couldn't work in the shape that I was in, but I wasn't willing to change my behavior because I was going to continue to do that. And I felt like I was, I earned this sick time. So I'm going to take it as I see fit. Um, so time and time again, you know, I, I'm drinking until two or three o'clock in the morning after everybody has gone to bed, or I know that I have to work, or I know I have an important obligation the next day. Um. And sometimes I would be able to make it and, and be fine and other times I knew that I would, um, I would probably smell like alcohol or quite frankly um, still be over the limit and not be able to work. Um, and by some grace, um, you know, by some power greater than me, I was, uh, I was smart enough to, to never drink at work and I was smart enough to use sick time uh, inappropriately, um, but I was smart enough to use sick time to, to not um, impact my career. And the problem with that is, again, time and time again, no consequences to my drinking. Um, I would say in, um, I don't know, a couple of years after I met Emily um, is when my um, is when I really started to recognize that that I had a problem and the consequences started to arrive. Um, I had this my my disease manifests in a way that um, I could be mad at you and I would drink about it and I would get really drunk and then I would take it out on Emily and I would never talk to you about it. I would never tell you that I was drunk or I would never tell you I was mad at you, I would just get drunk. And then behind closed doors at our house, um, I was a completely different person. And what that started to do, obviously, as expected, as anybody could see now, um, that started to impact my marriage and my relationships in a pretty significant way. Um, You know, my friends stopped wanting to be around me Quite frankly, I don't think Emily's ever said it out loud, but um, she was pretty well done with me. Like, people didn't want to be around me and they, uh, they didn't like who I was. And the problem was um, in the off moments that I could stay sober for a couple, four or five days, six days, um, I was so miserable. I was so irritable and restless and discontent that um, people didn't want to be around me when I was sober either. So I, when I was drinking, people didn't want to be around me. And then when I'm sober, people don't want to be around me. So now I'm in this, I'm in this dilemma of, you know, people don't, I, I'm not accepted when I'm sober and I'm surely not accepted when I'm drunk. Um, and I think that's the problem that, that I have. I, I know now that's the problem that I have that, you know, I, I carry around these character defects and I carry around all this stuff with me. Um, and I didn't know how to live a sober life. I'd spent so much of my time insanely intoxicated. Um, and living this fake life that I didn't know how to do it sober um, and that continued to impact our life so you know in an effort deep down inside the whole time I I was still wanted to be a good person I wanted to be a good husband I wanted to be a good um, employee I wanted to you know I still was really enjoying what I was doing Um, so I would go through these times where Emily and I would have a huge blow up um, at absolutely no fault of hers a hundred percent my own fault my own doing Um, there's a, there's a passage in the book that I read all the time that says we think our problems are our own making. Like all of our problems. For a guy like me, all of my problems are of my own making. It's not your fault. It's not her fault. It's not anybody's fault. It's my fault. Um, so I would go through these times where I recognized these problems and I would try to stay sober. And I spent, um, I think a couple of, of bouts of sobriety, um, really what I now call a dry drunk. I was. Um, I spent maybe a couple months here and there before I got hired with Colorado Springs and I was able to stay sober for a period of time. Um, And then I would always convince myself that, all right, I've got this thing under control. Now I'm the guy that can go out and have one drink or one, you know, one beer or have fun on the weekend when we go to a concert or something and then I'll be fine. And that was always true for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months. And then inevitably um, that, craving for alcohol and that obsession over um, being intoxicated and, and that obsession over alcohol was, um, it was back in full force and most of the time worse and I could not stay sober. So I would control it for a period of time and then next thing you know, I'm off to the races again. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the biggest eye-opening moments for me was um, I was still working at AMR Um, And it's one of the most embarrassing stories of my entire life. Um, Emily was at work and uh, I was out at a party or out at a bar doing, you know, who knows where I was, what I was doing. Um, But I was trying to walk home from our house uh, to our house on Boulder Street. And I ended up um, being one of our patients that um, 911 got called on me. And uh, I decided that it would be a good plan for me to sleep on Boulder Street. And I'm, um, you know, three. Qu- I've got my head kind of up on the curb, two o'clock in the morning. I'm using the the curb cut as a nice pillow, um, and my legs are laying straight out in Boulder Street. And um, I wake up to, uh, I wake up to Kevin Aperon standing over me. I- I've told Kevin this before, but um, he really, he really did. Um, as stupid as I was, i mean, know, I'm trying to fight him. I'm trying to fight the cops. I'm trying to you know, my ego was hit. I'm, I'm so embarrassed that I'm just trying to fight my way out of this thing. And uh, Kevin was as cool as he absolutely could have been to me. He was um, he treated me I don't really have the words to articulate how I feel about the way he treated me. Um, but he really showed some true compassion to me. And I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. Um, I ended up not going to the hospital. Um, but I ended up, uh, you know, again, just because of my position in life. Um, I got put in the back of an ambulance and driven home and then they dumped me off in my house and I, you know, I had no consequences again. So then, you know, then I have to, you know, see Kevin on calls and stuff. And that was a little embarrassing, but we worked through that and we're good now. But um, so at that moment I said, okay, that that's enough. I've got to, I have to get sober. Like I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get killed. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my marriage. I'm going to lose everything that I have in my life. That's worth living for uh, if I don't stop drinking. Um, So I stayed sober for um, maybe a month or two um, and I was right back at it again. You know, every time I would drink, I would blackout. Every time I would drink, I would fight with Emily. Every time I would drink, I would commit to, you know, crazy stuff like trips and helping people and doing all this stuff. And then the next day I would wake up and I would be hungover and I would flake. And I would fight and I just could not stay sober. And you know, I think for most normal folks, when alcohol starts to intrude on their life so aggressively they kind of look at that stuff and they say like, I I have to stop and they have enough willpower and they have enough reason in their life to stop drinking. And um, I had all the reason in the world to stop drinking. Um, My health was starting to fail. I was sick all the time. Um, I was sick for eight or nine months straight. You know, I would lose my voice all the time. I was um, incredibly overweight. Um, I didn't sleep well, I had sleep apnea, and I was just, I was a wreck, and um, I had all these reasons to stop drinking, and I wanted to stop. I wanted to stop more than anything in this world, and I couldn't, I could not stop. You know, I tried all sorts of stuff. Um, I tried to not have liquor in our house. I tried to only drink beer. I tried to switch to, you know, maybe I'll just drink vodka from here on out. Maybe I'll just drink whiskey. Maybe I'll only drink on occasions. Um, And again, time and time again, that worked for a period of time and then it did not work anymore. I I, I never had the willpower. I was completely, utterly powerless over alcohol. It had, alcohol was my master, no doubt in my mind. um, And I could not do anything to change it. Um, so I got hired here in Colorado Springs in 2016, um, and that was a huge wake-up call for me. You know, I was overweight, and I was drinking every day, and I was I was in the worst shape of my life, and I was a miserable human being. Um, and that, for a brief time, was uh, enough to keep me sober. And I said, I have to get sober, and I have to lose weight, and I have to get ready for the academy, because I finally got the job that I wanted, and um, I knew that um, I knew that I would not be able to do it in the shape that I was in. So I stayed, uh, air quotes, uh, I stayed sober for about six months. Um, realistically, um, if I were to be honest with myself and everybody, I was probably sober um, during the academy, uh, during my academy, and then a little bit through probation. Um, but then I would start to sneak drinks again, you know. Um, at the end of the academy, Emily's at work because, you know, she worked here before me and. So she's at work and I'm at home, and you know I have, you know, four or five shooters or whatever, and then I put them in the bottom of the trash can, and then I make sure I take the trash out. And what it looks like on the outside is like, oh, Kent's a really good husband. You know, he's doing this thing. He got hired. He's you know taking care of himself. He's taking care of the house. I was really just trying to cover my tracks and hide all the stuff that I was doing. Um, and then, what I was a master at was manipulating. <clears throat> so, I. Uh, at the very end of, probably at the very end of my academy, I think it was actually the day I graduated my academy, I really, really wanted to to be included and to, to go out and have some drinks with everybody that I graduated with. So Emily and I had this really long conversation and I had this, I had like this business proposal for her. Like, like I was about to ask her for all sorts of money or something. You know, I laid all this stuff out about how I was in control and how I was gonna make things different this time. So um, again, I started drinking again and that was a choice for me to, I had already started drinking again, but um, I wanted to start drinking again in, in the open so I didn't have to hide it from anybody. Um, so I did. Uh, I got Emily convinced that I was good to go, no problems whatsoever. And uh, that was good for, I don't know, two or three months maybe. <laughs> you know, Emily, uh, I, I love the looks that she gives cause maybe two or three months is a little generous, but it probably was a lot shorter than that. But. Um, then I was right back to where I was. Um, I would get off work and um, I would go to a bar. Uh, there was a little neighborhood coffee shop that I would go to that served alcohol um, and they served alcohol you know first thing in the morning, whatever and um, I would put you know a couple shots of whiskey in my coffee. I would do all this stuff on my days off and next thing you know, by noon or one o'clock on my days off, i'm uh, once again hammered and <clears throat> Um, now it's starting, not only is it impacting Emily in ways that I never, um, I never could have imagined um, how how my drinking negatively affected her, um, but it was also starting to affect us financially. You know, I had bar taps that were $700 at this local coffee shop. Um, Emily had to come peel me out of those bars, uh, that bar, a couple different occasions. And, you know, she's a saint, she's never telling me, that I'm doing anything wrong, necessarily, you know, she would always very carefully kind of try to guide me down a different path and, hey, we need to, you know, be careful. We're spending too much money at the at the bar and we're doing this stuff. And really, she was terrified of approaching me because I had become such a volatile, um, just mean person um, that I gave her no space. I gave her no opportunity to have a a real adult conversation with me and tell me that there was an issue going on. so um that continued for a little while and um uh in on january 9th uh, january 8th um of 2022 i had my last drink of alcohol and i remember i remember exactly where i was i remember exactly who i was with i remember the exact circumstances um I remember exactly how I was treating Emily. I remember exactly um, the decisions that I was making. I remember those things like they were yesterday. And um, I had my last drink of alcohol that day. Um, January, I I, I don't know my, I don't remember the exact date, but um, January 11th, um, 2022 is what I call my sobriety date. And um, what happened was, I finally got to this point. I finally got to, in that book that I read, I, I finally got to the jumping off point. I was, um, I, I had all of these um, issues, I, you know, trouble with my personal relationships. I was anxious all the time. I was mean all the time. I was, you know, all of these different things. Um, and I finally got to the point where um, it was like, I'm either going to get sober or I'm going to be done doing this. And when I mean What I mean by being done doing this is um, a a couple of different times. But, you know, one time very, very specifically, I thought there's I have no way out like I do not have a way out. Um, And it's the first time in my life that um, suicide has ever crossed my mind. Um, And it still really kills me today to think about that Um, just to, you know, kind of bring me back to that place, um, not in a dark or negative way, but to, to really. Um, realized that I I had gotten that far down that road, um, you know. And, and again, I'm I'm leaving some some uh, specific details out, but that's okay. Um, so I get to this point where um, I had I had what I like to call, and what what a lot of people will know as the gift of desperation. I was given a gift. I was so desperate to live a life. Um, I was so desperate to live a life that was any any way different than it was uh, currently. Um, because I wasn't only ruining my own life, I was ruin- ruining Emily's life. Um, she never knew what she was gonna get. Um, so I got to this point um, the next morning, um, I talked to her about it and I told her, I said, I think I'm an alcoholic and I think I have a problem with alcohol. Um, <laughs> and I think she said something like, yeah, I think so, maybe, you know? Um, but again, she was, she was never you know, never critical of me and never criticized me. But um, I called the one and only person that I knew um, in this world at the time that would understand what I was going through. And, you know, I know that I could call you or I could call, you know, I could call anybody else, um, but they wouldn't really understand what I was talking to. Um, and on that morning, or on that afternoon, I called Brad White. And um, I tell Brad this all the time, but, um, man, I really think Brad saved my life. Um, Brad's got a crazy busy life, you know, he's got kids, his wife works all the time, he's you know, obviously um, busy with work. And um, I felt like in that moment, there was absolutely nothing that could have been going on that would have stopped Brad from coming to my house. Um, he dropped everything and he came to my house. Um, and from that point on, Brad kind of helped guide me through this, uh, this process of recovery. And when I got to that point, I was like, a like a child all over again like i didn't know what to do i didn't know what to say i didn't know what to, who to call i didn't know who i should tell um i didn't know if i could recover i didn't know any of those things um and i remember brad gave me a hug and he said don't worry buddy i got a way out i'll show you and um not only did he show me um but the in that moment. But uh, to this day, he's one of those guys that continues to show me um, how to live a sober life. So, you know, that's kind of the, the alcohol portion of it. And I, I think it's super important to I think it's super important to recognize that <clears throat> I, I would I would I would drink and I would justify my drinking because of stuff that we see here at work. I I, I looked at it as I knew I had a problem, but I knew I had a perfect excuse to continue to drink. Um, It didn't matter what what the calls were, but any, um, it's crazy for me to say, but any time I had a rough call, you know, a peds arrest. I was the first ambulance to Planned Parenthood shooting. uh, When I responded to the Halloween shooting at Platten, um wasatch i was on an ambulance and uh story for a different time maybe but um i thought emily and her mom were the we got dispatched to two females who had been shot on the front porch of a house um and 10 minutes before that emily told me that uh, her and her mom were going to walk down to our new house and uh i couldn't get a hold of her as i was responding in that ambulance and um i thought for sure that i was going to pull up to to emily and her mom uh, shot, and that was not the case, obviously. But any time, you know, whether it was that, whether it was Planned Parenthood, whether it was a Peds arrest, whether it was a, you know, a fire where we pull a couple of kids out, um, I had the perfect excuse to drink. Um, so I carried that with me for a long time, and I wasn't willing to to take any help, and I wasn't willing to take any healing um, because it was a good excuse to drink. But then I get sober, um, and I start and I start doing a lot of work on myself, and what I realize is. Uh, all that stuff is still there, like all the stuff that I've never dealt with. I've never dealt with my ego. I've never dealt with my pride. I've never dealt with my selfishness. I've never dealt with my ability to manipulate people. I've never dealt with um, my ability to to, you know, fake and hide and and all this stuff. So um, that was really hard um, because I didn't have alcohol to cover that stuff up and I didn't have alcohol to continue to. To push all that down and and make me at least be able to to function in daily life and um so this has been a a huge process you know um i just hit a pretty big uh there's some big milestones in sobriety and um it it doesn't seem like a lot compared to some of the folks that have been on this podcast um but uh, i just hit my 18 month um, milestone of sobriety uh, a couple of days ago, actually, and that's a big deal. Um, and it's a big deal for a guy like me. Um, I couldn't string together three days of sobriety um, with any luck for the last 15 years of my life. So the fact that um, I haven't had a drop of alcohol in 18 months and more importantly, I haven't had any desire, like none. The, the obsession of alcohol for me has been lifted, it's been taken from me. And um, for something like that to happen to a guy like me is an absolute miracle. But what it's done now is it's given me this opportunity to, um, you know, utilize the services that are here, um, here at our at Colorado Springs, you know, through our peer support team. I um, mean, what a time to be in our organization if there's issues like this, um, because the support is there, the people are there, the, the resources, the avenues, all of those things are there. So um, I'm a huge proponent of being open about it. And I've been to Insight Services and I've done some EMDR stuff and I've um, finally started to work through a lot of the things in my life that, um, a lot of things in the in my life that I was carrying around with me that were miserable. And I think it's important too to talk about, um, I'm not an alcoholic and I'm not a, a, a person that, that has to Go through this life of recovery. I'm not an alcoholic because of the things that I see. I'm not an alcoholic because of the things that have happened in my life. Those are a part of who I am, and those are a part of you know what makes me me. But I, I'm an alcoholic because I've got I I my body and my brain react differently to alcohol. I, I I've heard it said before, and it's something that really makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I have a mind that won't leave it alone and I have a body that can't take it. Like once I put one drop of alcohol in my system, I will continue to drink until I cannot drink anymore. I do not have an off switch. Um, And then the problem is, I know that I don't have an off switch, but then my mind tells me like, it'll be better this time, it'll be fine this time. Or, you know, everything will be better if you just have a drink, it'll be just fine. So I've got this mental obsession over alcohol and I've got this physical allergy and I've got this physical craving uh, for alcohol that can only be stopped in, in, in my experience, um, it can only be stopped in, a, in, in one specific way. Um, and I, yeah, I don't, I don't mean that to be, say that we can't get sober in other ways, but the way that I've done it has worked well for me, obviously. Um, so I, I, you know, I think what's important is um, <clears throat> I was super ashamed and I was super embarrassed and I carried around the shame, this guilt for a long time um, because of my past and because of how I treated Emily and um, I think there would be a lot of people who are shocked um, to hear because I was so good at hiding and faking and um, on the outside my life looked great but on the inside um, I was in this complete and utter turmoil. My life was hanging on by a thread, uh, you know, physically, mentally um, and quite frankly Emily's life was hanging on by a thread. Everything good in our life was about to be grenaded because of, because of me. Um, and I think that's that's the issue, right? That we, we get so good at living this fake life and we get so good at covering up and we get so good at hiding um, that people don't recognize that there's potentially a problem. Those symptoms don't present to the outside world. And I do that in, on purpose. That's an intentional thing for a guy like me. And <clears throat> so what my intention is, um, there's been a couple of, of people, a couple of men in my life that um, have absolutely saved my life, Um, Brad White being one of them, John Giacoma being one of them. Um, Those those guys have been a part of saving my life, and not only have they saved my life, but they saved Emily's life. They saved my marriage, they saved my career. Um, But they didn't do it for me, they were there. They were there and they were able to guide me down this path, and it took a lot of work. It took a lot of work on my part, and it took a lot of um, difficult and vulnerable conversations um, but I knew I always had support. So my intent uh, of coming on the podcast is simply to, um, I think, I think it's important to recognize that, um, alcoholism and, you know, I'm, I'm not, aii uh, I never struggled with drug addiction, but, um, you know, alcohol addiction and drug addiction present in so many different ways for so many different people. I, I thought to be an alcoholic, you had to, you know, live out of a trash bag and to, live under the bridge and be the guy that, you know, 911 gets called on all the time, but um, that is so far from the truth. Um, there's people walking around this world today who are, you know, high-powered attorneys and doctors and firefighters and police officers and, you know, moms and dads and teachers and um, it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what what the what your bottom point is, um, that doesn't mean that, that I'm not an alcoholic. Um, And when I finally was able to admit that to myself, when I was finally able to say like, yeah, that's who I am. I am an alcoholic. I'm powerless over alcohol. My life is unmanageable. Everything in my life is crumbling. From that very moment, uh, my life changed. My life changed in a positive way. So what I wanna do today is um, really be a a kind of a, just another face and another, um, another voice for, Um, alcohol addiction doesn't look the same on everybody and, um, it's okay to not be okay, but there are absolutely, um, there are absolutely avenues for us to, to recover. And, um, I think one of the most impactful things in my sobriety is, you know, part of my, part of my recovery, um, in my experience is, um, to make amends to people and. one of the most uh, profound and powerful things in my life um, was to finally look Emily in the eyes and to finally um, be completely open and raw and vulnerable and um, admit my faults, admit my mistakes, um, and to make those amends to her. And then not only in the one-time setting of I'm I'm directly making amends to you, but um, the living amends that I get the opportunity to live every single day. Like... Because I'm sober today, I have the opportunity to show up for Emily in ways that I never showed up for her before. Like for our entire marriage, really. um, She only knew drunk, mean, manipulative, alcoholic. That's the only guy she knew, and she stuck around for that. She stuck around for that the whole time. Um, And I drug her through the mud. I made her life absolutely miserable. So. To be able to get sober because of the, the resources available, because of the, the, the men in my life who have been there for me, um, I get the opportunity to show up and be the husband that I should be for Emily, the husband that she deserves. Um, getting sober has changed my perspective on life in general, um, but specifically in you know in my personal life has changed my perspective on my marriage, it's changed my perspective on my personal relationships. It's changed my perspective on what service really means, my perspective on, uh, on the people that we get the opportunity to interact with every single day at work. Like I have an opportunity now to no longer be a selfish, self-centered, egotistical person that I used to be, um, but I get the opportunity every single day when I go to work uh, to be of service to somebody else. And and the term service to me means so much more now than it did before. It was kind of the checkbox for me before. Like, yeah, I get to go serve these people and I get to go do this stuff, but I would still get frustrated and it's because I was so torn up uh, myself. But um, now I look forward to the opportunities to you know, interact with that interact with that patient that's maybe in DTs or interact with that patient that's um, struggling with a drug addiction or a, a mental health crisis and um, I'm not perfect at it but um, and I don't I don't necessarily openly share that with my patients obviously but um, deep inside I've got a different connection with them than maybe somebody who doesn't struggle with the same thing as I do um, I've got a deeper connection with that patient that they do um, so my whole life has changed you know I, I I've got this, this perspective on life. I've got this um, immense amount of gratitude. Um, and I'm a living, breathing example of like, you don't have to lose everything. Um, I, you, we always hear the term rock bottom, right? When we're talking about alcohol and, and drug addiction. And again, I thought rock bottom had to be this, you know, super low, live under the bridge, live out of a trash can. And somebody told me really early on in my sobriety that, there, that your rock bottom happens when you stop digging the hole, just stop digging the hole. And then, you know, if you want, if you're down in the hole, we can throw the shovel down to you and you can continue to dig deeper and deeper and deeper. But the opportunity exists um, if you're willing to do the work and you're willing to take the gift. Um, the opportunity exists to recover. And um, man, it's, uh, it's something that I don't, when I sit here and think about it, sometimes I don't have the words to articulate it. You know, My relationship with my dad is back. I didn't talk to my dad for like three years. Um it wasn't his fault um it was my fault i didn't want to i didn't want him to see who I was i didn't want him to be disappointed in me i didn't want any of that stuff um, but now i've got a better relationship with my dad than I've had in probably thirty years um, and that's something that um, I would have never been able to do on my own um <laughs> You know, so I I get emotional about this stuff because it matters, um, and I'm so grateful, and I'm so grateful for um, the fact that you know my wife stuck by me the entire time, and um, I've got this view now that like, man, it, it who, the, the sky is the limit, right? Like I, I finally feel free, and I finally feel like I can just exist in life, and things don't bother me as much. And you know what's funny is as I say that I've got. I've kind of always had the reputation of being the guy that's kind of a hard-ass and kind of the guy that uh, – am I allowed to cuss on here? Okay, sorry. Um, I've kind of been a. Uh, I've been trying to be really good about that. Um, I've been, you know, known as the hard-ass and kind of a, a guy that will fly off the handle and, and all this stuff. But um, now I'm getting the opportunity to show people um, that that's not who I am anymore. It's not who I want to be. I want to be the guy that um, is – you know, a little more loving, a little more tender, a little more um, caring and compassionate um, because that's the behavior that was displayed to me and that's the, that's the type of um, characteristics that, that those guys that I just, that I mentioned before, um, that they did to help, help save my life. They showed me love and compassion. And, um, and I think getting sober is, um, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life, but easily the most important thing. Um, and to this day, one day at a time, uh, I take action every single day to make sure that I stay sober um, and to make sure that I do show up in the world like people deserve me to show up in the world um, some days I don't want to some days it's harder than others um, but to this day, um, and continuing on, uh, God willing, um, I will continue to take that action every single day so I stay sober. Um, yeah, I think uh again, that's, I I didn't, I tried not to jump around too much, but I think that's kind of the gist of it. Um, at least now if people hear this, uh, maybe they'll approach me and have some conversations if they would like to. And, uh, maybe some of your questions will spark some more conversation, but, um, that's about what I've had, what I have, um, specifically, I think, um, yeah, I think that's it for now.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about your recovery? Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe start with, you know, you started with your conversation with Brad, but where does it go from there? And I know as we've, we've had conversations on this podcast, everybody's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Some people need, you know, the full blown inpatient, yep. you know, medical help. Some people need, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. So what was your recovery like?
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm not, uh, I did never, I never experienced, um, inpatient rehab or uh, even outpatient stuff. Um, I, you're right. That absolutely um, could uh, be necessary for somebody. It wasn't necessary for me. Um, So what happened for me was I called uh, Brad and um, he (laughs) showed up at my house 30 minutes later. And, um, you know, 15 minutes after that, after a fairly brief conversation, um, I think Brad said something to me like, I figured you'd call me one of these days. Yeah, thanks Brad. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> um, but but that's the thing, right? Like, maybe Brad knew that I needed some help, but it's not going to work unless I want it. You know, once I wanted it, um, he was ready and he was ready to take action on that. So, um, for me personally, this is just my experience. I'm not saying it's the only way, but um, I go, I work a twelve-step program, um, and I uh, do attend Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and it is um, something that is fantastic. Um, I was super embarrassed and I was really ashamed and I wanted to hide my face when I went into those rooms. And, um, I was, I was seriously concerned. Um, but I knew that I had to, I knew I didn't really have any other option. Um, so, uh, for me, uh, what happened, um, is I kind of started off with Brad. He, uh, he helped me kind of get, he pointed me in the right direction. He Brad knew what I didn't know, and he was willing to share that with me. So he took me uh, to my very first meeting ever, and he uh, sat there with me, and you know, <laughs> handed me tissues as I was crying and, and things like this. But um, from there, what what happened is I um, I met uh, I met a guy that um, has absolutely zero connection to the fire department, um, and uh, he has helped take me through those twelve steps. Um, that, that I work every single day. So, um, I've worked a 12-step program, and it's not something that we work uh, one time and then uh, we're done. You know, there's steps that that I take every single day, um, and there's there's things that I do every single day um, based on that 12-step program through Alcoholics Anonymous that um, that keep me sober. Um, essentially, that that program is um, you know obviously anybody can get online and read about it, but the gist of it is it's a um, it's a spiritual program and a program of action like. Um, we finally we finally stop um, we stop avoiding the the idea of spirituality and it's not a it's not a religious thing it's not you don't have to go to church you're not doing any of that stuff um, it is um, it's simply a spiritual idea and a program of action and the program of action is the twelve steps and those twelve steps have included a lot of really diligent hard work on my part and I had to be honest with myself and I had to be honest with other people um, and that uh, is something that, again, I continue to do every single day. Every single day that I can, um, I do that. And when I don't do that, um, I start being an a-hole again. I just don't, uh, I don't show up in, in life like that. So it's kind of like I I go in for my little adjustment and um, and it helps keep me sober.
0: You talked about you know how you felt, well, yeah, you could call me, mm-hmm. you know, but Brad was the more appropriate call. How how important it, is it to have somebody that's walking a mile in your shoes, to have that person? Because what I can provide is like, here, here's all the resources available to you, but I don't know. I haven't felt the physical pain that you're feeling. So how important is it to have that person in your life that's been there who can help guide you down the right path, but also call your BS.
1: Yep. Um, so I think somebody, um, you know, one of my biggest problems is, um, is ego. And generally, um, it, it says it in that book that I read that, um, our, anybody who struggles with the disease of alcoholism is somebody that, that struggles with ego. Like we have to flatten our ego. so for me personally um like if i were to call you i don't think my ego would have ever let me call you because we worry about what other i worry about what other people think about me you know i've got a lot of respect for you on a personal and professional level and um we we i tell myself these stories in my head like oh you know justin's gonna he's never gonna look at me the same he's never gonna um you know he's gonna judge me he's gonna do this stuff And, and i know those things to be false um but my ego won't let me do it. So there's this shame and this embarrassment and this, this pain and this turmoil that you're going through. And I think the only way for me to, to let down my guard and to let down that ego was to go through somebody who I know they've felt that same pain and that same ego, that ego-driven um, prote- they're trying to, we're trying to protect ourselves. And um, so, you know, knowing Brad and knowing Brad's story, I knew Brad's story um, a long time ago. Um, you know, well back when I was still drinking, I knew Brad's story. Um, but I knew what Brad had to go through to get to where he is today. And I knew that the pain and that kind of that, um, that feeling of just like self-pity and uselessness and, you know, all of those miserable things that we feel. Um, I knew he had felt those, so I felt safe going to him. Um, that's the, it's a tough thing, right? Because, you know, I, I didn't even feel safe going to Emily, really, because I, I I didn't really know if she would get it. Um, like she's not like me. She doesn't respond like me to alcohol. And um, so I, I think the value in having the value in going to somebody who, like, as you said, has walked a mile in your shoes, um, that's what helped me kind of drop my ego and, and feel, um, feel safe. Like they've been there. They felt exactly what I'm feeling right now. Um, and that's the person that I need. But you're right. Um I also need somebody who's not like they're there, everything's gonna be fine. Um I needed that for about, you know, a couple of days, but then I needed somebody to say, like, it's time to get to work, man. Like you can't just sit here and not take action. You have to take action. This isn't just gonna come to you through osmosis, it's time to work. Um and I'm gonna be with you every single step of the way, I'm gonna help you through it all. And um and that's what I had through through Brad and um it was Probably the only reason I got sober, because I wouldn't have called anybody else. I, I just wouldn't have. I know myself. I would not have done it. So.
0: Last question. Um, most recovered addicts that I've known have two common things. They, they remember their first experience with whatever substance, like vividly, mm-hmm. their first experience, the taste, the smells, the feeling to the point where they say, I knew I was different or I knew it was different and I'm looking at other people that are sharing this experience with me and I knew something was w- different with it. So that first, very first experience with it, they remember as vividly as any memory. Yeah. But they also have share that same vividness with their moment of clarity. Yeah. <laughs> now you talked about a lot of the, the, the outward things that you gained from that moment of clarity what did you gain spiritually? And I don't mean theologically, but spiritually and soulfully. What did you gain from that moment of clarity?
1: Yeah, when I, um, you know, kind of in that moment, um, I I had been a super anxious and um, just really, for lack of a better word, scared person for a long time. Like I was scared of people. I was anxious to be around groups and crowds. And don't get me wrong, like I still don't like crowds all that often. But um, I was just anxious and nervous all the time. And when I finally let myself believe and let myself, uh, I actually was driving alone in my truck and I think I said it out loud, like I'm an alcoholic and I cannot stop drinking. I, I can't do this. Um, I, it was probably the first moment of true peace that I've had in 15 years. Um, I was terrified, don't get me wrong, I was still incredibly terrified, but um, saying those words out loud to myself, saying those words out loud to Emily and saying those words out loud to, to Brad, um, it was, uh, it was one of the most relieving things, um, that I've experienced. I, it was almost as if my anxiety was just gone. It was taken. Um, you know, now I'm not on any anxiety meds. I'm not on, you know, nothing. And so in that one single moment, um, I got more peace and I got more, um, kind of relief from all of the stuff that was in my head and all of the stuff that was, you know, just building up inside of me over the years. Um, I finally had some peace and had some relief and I don't really, I don't know how I would have gotten that another way.
0: So I want to throw something at you. Yeah. Something new and something different. We talk a lot about mental health. Um, physically we talk about physical health when physical health is failing and so i almost feel like the term mental health oh i have mental health issues or you know i'm working on my mental health has some negative connotation what if we worked on our mental fitness i think that's good you know we work on our physical fitness a lot like we go to the gym and it's a daily thing and Mm -hmm. you know what do you think about working on mental fitness? Is there, you know, maybe we should take actions uh, on a daily basis to make sure we're mentally fit? Yep, and mentally getting stronger.
1: I think that's uh, a, that's really a fantastic way to put that. That's why you're probably going to soon graduate to professional podcaster, not amateur <laughs> podcaster, um, because of ideas like that. But yeah, it's a great way to put that. That you know, like I said, every single day I take this daily action and. <clears throat> what my issue is is really still to this day i'm sober obviously today um but that doesn't mean that that this mental um this disease doesn't still exist like it is still there um my disease is out in the parking lot doing push-ups ready for me to just slip one time and then i'm off to the races again um however i'm able to combat that uh, through that mental fitness and I look at that as kind of like I've got to take that action um, you know every single day to basically distance myself from that first drink. You know, this disease centers in my mind. It's a it's a problem in my mind. Yes, there's also a physical component of it too. Like I can drink nonstop and when I start I can't stop. But the problem is that that physical manifestation of the disease. That never enters my world if I never take the first drink. If I don't ever take a first drink ever again in my entire life, I will never have to deal with the physical aspects of this disease. But literally from this day forward, all the way until the very end, until they throw dirt over me, the, the disease will still center in my mind and that still is present every single day. And we can let it get really, really bad. We can continue to get restless and irritable and discontent. I can continue to be mean to my wife. I can continue to do all those things. But if I take that action every single day, that helps combat that mental portion um, of the disease that I struggle with. And when my when I'm mentally fit and when I'm mentally in a good place, specifically in my recovery, I don't have to worry about the first drink. It's only an arm's length away at all times. So I, there's alcohol everywhere. Everywhere in this world, you go to a gas station. I was in Austin, Texas. I was in the Yeti store. There was a bar in there. Like it's everywhere you look. Um, but because of that mental fitness and because of that daily action, um, I, I I have not had a desire. I had not. I have not had one desire to drink alcohol in over 18 months. Not one. And <coughs> I think it's that's it's that's just crazy to me. Um, so I, yeah, I think whatever that looks like um, for each individual person, you know, I've got, I've got a fairly, um, I've got a fairly, I don't wanna say strict necessarily, but I've got a fairly regimented thing that I do, just kind of like my morning routine. My morning routine is the same um, most every mornings. Um, sometimes it's a bit longer, sometimes it's a bit shorter, but uh, my morning routine consists of um, me taking that action to stay mentally fit. And when I do, um, I'm in a good place.
0: Um yeah, I was going to say that sounds like a mental workout, yeah, you know made to make you sure your mind is sharp and, and fit and yeah, and ready so to take on a new day.
1: In some of those days, like I have absolutely zero desire to do it. I don't want to read, I don't want um, I don't want to do the other things that I do every morning. I don't want to do those things like I, I would rather sit on my phone and watch YouTube or something like that's what I want to do, um, but I know that if I do that. If I do that for one day, I'm probably okay. If I do that for a week, I'm probably okay. But then I start to build momentum in the wrong direction. And I start to build momentum back towards that first drink. And if I take that first drink, again, I'm screwed. Um, but if I can keep that momentum going, whether it's small or whether it's large, it doesn't matter. As long as I've got that forward momentum, um, I'm in a place of, they, what the book says is, um, it says that I'm in a position of neutrality. I'm safe and protected. Um, And I genuinely feel that. I'm neutral against alcohol. I don't care if you drink, you could have a beer sitting right in front of you right now and it would not impact me in one single bit. I do not care. Um, So I'm neutral, I'm indifferent against it. I don't look at anybody differently who drinks alcohol Um, and I'm safe and protected because of the work that I do every single day. Um, I'm not in fear right at this exact moment of going out and having another drink. But if that goes away, the disease still centers in my mind and I'm off again. So. Um, that's kind of that that mental fitness part of that, for sure.
0: Yeah, it sounded like a workout, like a physical workout. Like <laughs> I sit on my couch and I'm like, I don't want to go work out today. <laughs> yeah, it and if is. If I don't, if I don't for a day, I'm probably okay. For a mm-hmm. week, I'm probably okay. But if I let it go, I'm just going to be fatter and slower than I already am. That's
1: right. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that's, our, that's that's the good way to put it. Like, you know, there's plenty of stuff that on a daily basis we don't want to do, but we know we should do. And I'm finally at that point in my life where um, no longer does alcohol have power over me. Um, I, realize that I, don't, um, I realize that I don't have power over a lot of stuff in my life, really anything in my life, alcohol included. Um, and the program that I work helps me find a power that's greater than me to keep me safe and protected mm-hmm. against alcohol and to keep me showing up in the world like I, like I know that I can um, and like people around me deserve me to be there for them.
0: Well, I have to admit, you're, you were right about one thing. You did say I would look at you different, you know, if you <laughs> if you told me the story. And, yeah. I, and I do, but I feel closer to you. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for trusting me. Of course. Um, thanks to everybody that comes on the show. And I think what we're trying to accomplish is, and I say we're trying to normalize it. We're not trying to say that the disease itself is normal and you should keep, um, keep on with the behavior. But we're trying to normalize it and say there's a lot of people in our world in our fire department that deal with addiction on a daily basis Yes. and you're not the only one um, they're not the only one and if you need help please come and ask for it even if it's to me and I point you off to Kent or Brad or Brian or Jason or somebody that's walked a mile in your shoes to help support you at least you took that first step yeah. And so that's the goal of this. So thank you for coming on. Again, thank you for the trust. Emily, thank you for being here. Mm-hmm. Appreciate your time. Um, we'll catch you next at the kitchen table.
1: Thank you.